theme of the Cove Conference is, you know, knowing yourself as a leader, but also understanding leadership in the context of the soldiers that you command. So when I spoke to the sergeants and the lieutenants on, uh, on Tuesday, I gave them a, it's a sort of basics of ethics, of behavioral psychology, and war studies. Now, I don't think I need to do that for this audience. What I think I wanted to do was to give you something that I think would, would be a useful case study as you step forward to continue the conversations after this, particularly with lieutenants and sergeants, but corporals and young soldiers about some of the things that happened in Afghanistan uh, almost a decade ago. Uh, and the implications that has for Army. So I'm going to talk to you about, and this is only about a half an hour presentation, so there should be good time for questions at the end, is uh, a guy called Marine A, all right, a chap called Sergeant Alexander Blackman. Uh, and Sergeant Alexander Blackman, and I'll talk about him in some detail, um, committed an abhorrent act in warfare. So he executed a wounded Taliban fighter in Helmand uh, province in 2011 in a premeditated act. So not only did he shoot the guy in the chest at point-blank range, they dragged him from point of wounding outside of both the uh, Apache helicopter that was watching them, but also the balloon from the local PB, so they were outside of recorded vision. So very deliberate act, all right? But it's not as simple as just the story of a guy pulling a trigger on a hot Hellman morning. What this is actually about is what got in there, what got his group in the place that they were by the time they got there. I will start with this slide, right? So my interest in all of these things comes from my own perspective of combat over the last 20 years. So I did 15 years in the British Army before I came out to Australia, uh, and I was either lucky or unlucky to go to some pretty interesting places during that time. I was at Sandhurst in 2001, and I sat in the cafe at Sandhurst and watched the Twin Towers come down, and then we immediately entered into two medium-scale wars for the next 15 years, which was, was pretty interesting. So the top left image you see up there is the Ba'ath Party headquarters in a place called Al-Zawar, which was just north of Basra, and that's a Challenger 2 commander's primary site of the tank that I was in at the time. All right. And the reason I'll show you these three things is it, it speaks to different ethical experiences in different frames of warfare. So as warfare changed and evolved, the way that impacted on people changed and evolved. So the first one, going across the border from Kuwait into Iraq to invade another country, is what you might call ice bucket ethics. So you went from no ability to, put, to apply violence to the very reason, as an armoured battle group you were there, was to kill other armour in sort of 24 hours, and just the stroke of a pen and the release of rules of engagement. All right, so kind of ice bucket ethics. And the reflection is that we, were, we weren't very prepared for it. You know, we hadn't really thought about it. As a young troop leader, I hadn't really thought about it that much. The middle image is uh, uh, six months I spent in Afghanistan in 2011 uh, working for a um, special forces task force conducting kinetic strike operations. So for long periods of time, we would observe individuals on a high-priority list, and once conditions were met, we would then apply lethal force against them using air-delivered munitions of various tools. So all done from great safety inside uh, a, a FOB or a PB, and at no risk to ourselves, and then once you've done it, you're going to have dinner, and then you come back and do it again. You know, it's a very different form of warfare, and it's what you might call the ethics of disassociation. You were very far away from the violence you were applying, very different to the first time actually harder, because you couldn't feel the visceral impact of what you were doing at the time, because it was so distant. And then the third one at the bottom is um, commanding a, a, a reconnaissance uh, force in Afghanistan for about nine months in 2013, 2014, where we were out and about the whole time. And so every four days, we'd go on and up, and we'd spend time on the ground, surrounded you know, behind enemy lines, and you know, surrounded by Taliban, and doing various bits and pieces. 
And that was really the sort of um, dehumanizing impacts when you spend a long time surrounded by people who really are trying to kill you all the time. And how do you deal with a populace that you can't necessarily uh, disassociate from that group of people? So that really got me interested in behaviors in warfare and also just trying to come up with understandings of two real things. You know, ethics is not theoretical, it's applied. This is what we talk about. It's applied behaviors, it's applied ethics. We're trying to make ourselves better warfighters by knowing about these things and understanding them. So applied military ethics, but also normative military ethics. How do you control people's behaviors in warfare? Okay, everyone happy? Cool. When I came back from those experiences, I was very lucky to go to the British Staff College and I met these two guys. This is a guy called Steve Hart on the right-hand side. One of the reasons I'm interested in Sant Blackman is that Steve Hart knows him well uh, as a Royal Marine. Um, he mentored Afghan Special Forces for a long time and he and I had some similar experiences and started to talk about it. The guy on the left is a guy called David Wetham. He is a moral philosopher. I like moral philosophers. They're not very good at parties, but they're really good to talk about things that happen on operations and pull stuff apart. Of note, he wrote the chapter on command culture in the IGADF inquiry. So there's lots of links that come out of that. Right. So we were at Staff College, we sat down to pull this apart, and we came up with the idea that there's three things that drive people's behaviors in warfare. And this makes the frame for what I'm going to talk to you about. Okay? So the three things that drive behavior in warfare, and this is what I spoke to the lieutenants and sergeants about, are individual agency, so your own character, your belief systems, how you were raised, what your parents told you when you were younger, your own psychology in a Freudian sense of what your own psychology looks like. The second thing is the situation. And we'll talk about situation a lot with Al Blackman because it was a very difficult one. But the impact of the situation on your behavior as all of your reference points about thing, how things should work start to split apart in warfare. And the third one is group culture. And my overriding conclusion to all of this is that group culture is the most important thing. It's either the biggest gateway to or the biggest defender against abhorrent behavior in warfare. So that's the frame we're going to talk about. Does that make basic sense to everybody? Everyone sort of nods and goes, yeah, that makes sense. Kind of get where you're coming from. Great. So really what this is is a bubble of three things. It's moral philosophy, it's behavioral psychology, and it's war studies. So it blends these three themes together to try and look at real life things. So I'm going to talk to you about this guy. Okay, so this is Sergeant Alexander Blackman. As I said, Alexander Blackman um, committed an abhorrent act. So he executed a wounded Taliban fighter. But this isn't just about him, okay? What I'm going to ask you to think about as we go through this is this, how Blackman's case, so this is a case study-led presentation, is an example of the impact of 15 years of persistent war on ethical decision-making. Okay, he was a product of that war over the period of time that it had lasted. It's a tragic theater of lessons that reaches from the hidden risks of coin through the psychological impact of constant conflict and then as far as the strategy as to how we build theatres. One of the big lessons I try and get across to people is that we think that ethics is an individual problem. We teach ethics to individuals. We think we fix ethics at the individual le le level. That's wrong. We fix ethics at the strategic level in the manner in which we choose to apply force and the way we design theatres through things like detention operations, through things like rules of engagement, things like that. Okay? So who is Alexander Blackman? All right, who here is a warrant officer? How many warrant officers have we got here? Okay, so Alexander Blackman is you five years ago. All right, absolutely you, okay? At the time of this taking place, he was 37 years old. He was an elite Royal Marine commando. So to be in a Royal Marine, you have to go through a selection course. You are selected. Uh, so you're in that sort of higher tier, tier two kind of stuff if you go through. And he was exceptionally experienced as a Royal Marine. He was combat experienced. He'd been to Iraq 2003 for the invasion on the Al-4 Peninsula. He'd been back in 2004 pretty much straight away. 
and then back in 2006. And for those who know Iraq in 2006, that was a pretty nasty period of time in Iraq in 2006, particularly when you're Royal Marine, as in you are frontline, doing the forward line stuff, okay? He'd also been to Afghanistan before in 2007. He had an exemplary service record, so there is absolutely no build-up to this. There was no indications prior that he was a bad guy, a bad apple, a sociopath, anything else that came with him. He's a troop sergeant in J Company, lots of responsibility in 4-2 Commando Group. He was deployed to an isolated checkpoint, and I'll come back to that, Checkpoint Omar in Helmand Province. He was married, but he had no kids. Whether that's relevant or not is something to think about. So he's a family guy, but he had no children. So Blackman and his team deploy out to CP Omar, and they have a pretty difficult five months. It's a very kinetic period of time, 2011, in and around the area of Hellman that they were in, fighting on a daily basis, exceptionally violent, lots of casualties, uh, particularly amongst their troop in terms of maimings and woundings, but also deaths, and I'll come back to that in a minute. One morning, what Blackman does is he steps out, they go on and up, guy gets injured by Apache helicopters in an engagement. And then, as I said, they pull him around the corner and Blackman shoots him in the chest um, at point-blank range. Now, what Blackman didn't know is that one of the helmet cameras that one of the other soldiers was wearing was on at the time. Okay? So what I'm going to show you now is the video footage that led up to the point where Blackman shot the guy in the chest. You don't, they never released the image or the footage of him doing it, but they released the audio. So you can hear what he said when he did it. All right? And the quoting of Shakespeare uh, as he did so is pretty profound. Okay, so that's what you're going to hear now. It's about 90 seconds. Okay, so you want to get arrested for murder, uh, shoot someone in the chest on camera, and then turn to the camera and say, I've just broken the Geneva Convention, don't tell anyone. All right, it's one of the best ways to get arrested for murder. Okay? 
But the story doesn't end there. And there's multiple layers to this. Okay. So they go back. One of the guys sends some stuff to be developed. In fact, they raid his house for some other reason. They find the footage on a, uh, on a computer. Uh, and Marines A, B, C, and D are arrested. Okay. Marines uh, B, C, and D have charges dropped. Marine A, Blackman, goes to trial for murder and is found guilty. So convicted of a capital crime. It's a whole-of-life sentence, a whole-life tariff. Uh, originally sentenced to 10 years and then reduced to eight years on the basis of psychological stress or the stress he was under at the time. There is no parole period for a determinate tariff. It's a determinate sentence. Okay? However, he goes to prison, but in 2013 to 2016, there's a huge public campaign for his release. Okay? Uh, he is led principally by his wife, supported by lots of Royal Marine associations that draw together a huge amount of money and that huge amount of money is then used to fund a very, very eminent QC, lawyer, barrister, who gathers additional evidence about the psychiatric nature of Blackman when he was conducting his operations. And it goes back to the Supreme Court for review on the basis of new psychiatric evidence. In March 2017, the Supreme Court overthrew the conviction and they replaced it from murder to manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. Okay? So they resentenced him to six years, uh, with time already served and a half tariff based on uh, a non-life tariff sentence, because manslaughter is not a life tariff sentence, he's then released. So in April 2017, Blackman is released after three years and re reunited with his family. Okay? So why did they overthrow the conviction? And this is important. So the conviction was quashed on the basis of the evidence of three psychiatrists, these three guys here. One of them, the guy on the left-hand side, is a Royal Navy psychiatrist who had done about four years' service in Afghanistan, so was hugely experienced as to what had gone on inside the country. And they said these things. They said that Blackman was suffering from an adjustment disorder, it's a diagnosed mental health condition, of moderate severity at the time. This disorder was capable of substantially impairing his ability to form a rational judgment or exercise self-control. And then they gave a number of reasons as to why that was. They looked at the environment, the situation, back to my first slide, as to what he was in. He was in a hyper-violent situation. There was an ID exploding in their AO every 19 minutes at the time. Uh, other Marines inside his platoon had been killed by the Taliban. Their bodies had been captured, and the Taliban had cut their arms and legs off and hung them in trees around the CP that they were in. Blackman's platoon commander had been killed about a month and a half earlier. So Blackman was then in command of the CP on his own. His father had died uh, before he left, and when he went back on Rockall, the one thing he had to do on Rockall was scatter his father's ashes after the funeral, at which stage, after his two weeks of doing that, he went back to theatre and cracks on. About a week before the incident, Blackman had almost been killed in a grenade attack by the Taliban. So he'd been in a trench, grenade had come in, it detonated just far enough away that it didn't kill him. But he had had a very, very close near-death experience about a week before. And as a result, he had developed an absolute loathing, a disgust for the Taliban around him. And they said these were all the contributing factors that led to him uh, manifesting an adjustment disorder, a diagnosable mental health condition. So the Supreme Court conclusion when they came to the judgment was this. They said the decision to kill was probably impulsive, and the adjustment disorder had led to an abnormality of mental functioning that substantially impaired his ability to exercise self-control. And that is despite the clear premeditation of the act, the fact they moved him around the corner, all the other bits and pieces. They said that was still impulsive. 
They said it impaired his ability to form a rational judgment about the need to adhere to the standards and moral compass as set by the armed forces. And as such, he could not be guilty of murder and had to be found guilty of manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. So why should anyone care about that other than Alexander Blackman? Why should you care about that? Well, for me, this is a really interesting case, both because of what happened there, but also the legal outcomes at the end of it. And there are legal lessons, tactical lessons, cultural lessons, and I'm going to take you through each one of those. Make sense? Cool. Okay, legal aspects. This might prove interesting over the next five to ten years. Okay? So, diminished responsibility in combat. Do we think that diminished responsibility in combat is an often used uh, defense against murder on operations? What do we think? So people who have committed murder on operations, do you think their first defense is, I was in combat and therefore I was out of control of my actions? Any views? So the answer is no. Very rarely, particularly in the last 20, 30 years, has this been used, okay? Now, most of the cases have been in the US and there's a reason why this isn't often used, is if you try and defend against a murder um, uh, accusation or a murder charge and you fail, you'll normally get the death penalty. So what you tend to do is plea bargain your way out of it by saying that I did it, but I was under diminished responsibility and therefore you shouldn't give me the death penalty. So Private First Class Stephen Green, uh, this is Murma Dyer, the Black Hearts murders from 2006 in the Triangle of Death in South Baghdad. They raped and murdered a little Iraqi girl called um, Abir al-Hamza. Um, he didn't um, uh, take any defense, he pleaded guilty for the act, um, but he tried to use diminished responsibility to avoid the death penalty, which he did. He then hung himself in prison about um, three years later. Uh, Star Sergeant Robert Bales, everyone know who Bales is? So that's the Kandahar massacres from 2011-2012. Bales went out of his CP, killed 16 Afghan local nationals in the local uh, village, went back to get more ammunition halfway through to go back and sort of finish the job off. Again, he pleaded guilty. He didn't plead diminished responsibility, but he did later say it mitigated his actions to avoid the death penalty. The only guy recently who's tried to do it is a guy called Staff Sergeant Chip Frederick. So he was the shift commander in Abu Ghraib. He was essentially the NCO in charge of Tier 1 Alpha, the night shift at Abu Ghraib, the guys who did all the uh, prison uh, abuses. So uh, his psychotherapist said that um, the Zimbardo defense, this is Philip Zimbardo, who did the Stanford prison experiments, he said that uh, Chip Frederick was out of control of his actions because of the situation he was in, and that the normal person might have reacted as Frederick did. Now that failed in court, and Frederick was found guilty and sentenced to eight years. So this really is the first time in a long time that a defense of diminished responsibility has been successful, where someone has argued, I did evidently an act of murder, but it can't be murder, it was manslaughter, because I was diminished of my responsibilities to combat stress. What's really important is the testimony of this psychiatrist. He said 20 to 25% of combat troops in Iraq or Afghanistan at some point suffer from a mental health difficulty. That's 25% combat troops. About a third of those diagnosed were adjustment disorders. All elite troops are trained to withstand stress. Everyone has a breaking point. He'd done four years in Afghanistan, so he knew what he was talking about. But if you put that into context, you're probably talking of a 10,000 strong force, maybe 2,000 of them who could arguably say they're not in control of their actions at any given time. So in legal aspects, that's quite profound. All right? And that has set precedence, Supreme Court judgments. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And you've got to think about whether you agree with that. You know, in the, the time after, as you're managing some of the things that you might be managing, how do you feel about it? Okay. So how legally responsible and accountable can we hold our soldiers when they're in theater? 
It's up to the organization to tell you that to a certain extent, and we always hold people, we are responsible for our own actions, but where do the mitigations lie? So, tactical lessons that come out of the Blackman line. This one for me is really interesting, okay? The reality is, is that Blackman was where he was inside an isolated CP, CP Omar, because we put him there. And we put him there because of doctrine. So everyone should be aware, the rewriting of the counterinsurgency field manual, FM324, around about 2006 by David Petraeus. Everyone kind of tracking that. And that was then the surge in Iraq, and that then bled out to all the Five Eyes communities about how we conduct counterinsurgency. And one of the core concepts that was in that was being amongst the people, what we call the ink block concept. Okay, so the ink block concept required you to put small groups of people in isolated CPs and create protected ink blocks that would then kind of put up together. We ran a huge amount of intelligence-led operations. Well, in order to do intelligence-led operations, you have to do detention operations. So suddenly you're into mixing in with the local community in very, very, very adverse situations all the time. So some of the situation that Blackman found himself in was because we put him there as part of a deliberate tactical model. When you talk about ethical stress, there's a number of facets of warfare that tend to enhance ethical stress. These are a few of them. So a big societal rift between the society you're from and the society you're fighting amongst, such as in Afghanistan. Isolation is a really, really big ethical stressor if you don't feel you have support and you're isolated all the time. Consistent fear of death, dehumanization of the enemy, uh, and high casualty rates. All of these things come out across lots of case studies about things that create ethical stress. And what you find is it's those ethical stress points that lead to soldiers looking like that. And I suspect that Blackman probably looked like that when he conducted the act that he did. One of the lessons I gave to the corporals, the sergeants, and the lieutenants is, if you're starting to see these things coming out of your soldiers, you're on really, really, really risky ground. So if you're seeing hopelessness, hatred, disgust, and revenge coming out of soldiers, you're into serious corruption and drift of ethical compasses. So the way we design our tactics has impacts, and it has impacts on the soldiers in which we put them in. It certainly had impacts on Blackman. As you go back through all of the case studies of sort of abhorrent behavior over the last 30 years, all of those things stand out. Isolation, high casualty rates, consistent fear of death, uh, dehumanization of the adversary, um, constant threat. So, Sergeant Bales, Kandahar, isolated CP, on his own amongst an SF community that he wasn't part of and therefore was quite rejected from. Uh, it was his ninth combat tour. Uh, he had had a traumatic brain injury in the previous tour, probably should have never been there in the first place. Okay? Tier 1 Alpha, the night shift in Abu Ghraib. Abu Ghraib was about as horrendous a place you could get at the time. It was being mortared on a daily basis. Guys were getting blown up every night. There were only about 150 guards for 9,000 prisoners, and they knew that weapons were in the prison community. They just didn't know where they were. So you're constantly under threat of attack. The Marlowe Massacre, C Company. Now, they'd only been in theatre 90 days, but they'd lost 26 people to snipers and booby traps over the 90 days they were in theatre. Okay, consistent fear of death. They hadn't seen the enemy. They just kept getting killed. And then Stephen Green and Mermadiah, you know, the Black Heart story down in the Triangle of Death in South Baghdad was a horrendous, horrendous place to be at the time. They were foot clearing major routes of IEDs on a daily basis, and guys were getting blown up on a daily basis. They had no, no capability to do it other than by eye, and that's what they were doing. So all of these patterns come out. So you start to analyze the situation you're in and where you end up. Now, there are things you can do, okay, and as OCs and, and SART majors, this is your business, all right? And there's a number of things we can do to put in place. So things like careful isolation, 
how long do we isolate people for before we start rotating them back into a safe place? In the First World War in the trenches, you'd only spend 19 days in the trenches before you'd be rotated out for a break. Okay, we now persistently put people in 365-day combat. Have we resourced them sufficiently? So the changeover between the previous organization and 4-2 Commando, the CP Manning went from 28 to 16 on the rollover. So they're trying to do it with 16 people. Everyone thinks Rockall's great, apart from when it sucks a quarter of your force away all the time, because you're running an air bridge. Field defenses, have you got them to the case that they can be safe? How often do you rotate? How much peer support is there? And have we got any padres in the room at all? How much pastoral care are we giving people? So there are great tactical lessons that can come out of a case study like this that we can apply in theatre to avoid going down where black men found themselves. Really important to coherent leadership, all right? Um, Blackman is at the bottom there. He had a platoon commander. He had a CO, a guy called Lieutenant Colonel Ewan Murchison, who he didn't get on with very well. Okay. Now, just before they went, the company commander injured himself and had to, he couldn't deploy. So they brought in a new company commander, a guy called Major Fisher. All right. Again, Blackman didn't get on very well with Major Fisher. This was not a tight connection or organization. About a month before Blackman committed what he did, platoon commander got killed. And what happened to Blackman in his own head was perception of isolation. He deeply felt that he had been abandoned by his chain of command. Now, the inquiry afterwards said he hadn't. They said they'd routinely visited the CP, they'd done what they could to try and do it, but it almost didn't matter. It was the perception of isolation that was the most damaging thing for Blackman, because he felt he'd been abandoned by his chain of command. It was only, didn't catch the red flags, it was only when Ewan Murchison left just towards the end of the tour, and it handed over to a guy called Ollie Lee, who was the CEO of 40 Commando, Okay, who walked in, had a look at it with fresh eyes, and went, this is fundamentally broken, and we have to fix it. And it was Lee who eventually took steps to try and seam things out before it all came to light of what Blackman had done. Again, through our case studies, this is absolutely typical in all these case studies. Okay, so in the Black Hearts example of Stephen Green, in the two months prior to the murder of the little Iraqi girl, they had lost uh, their first sergeant, so their sergeant major, they'd lost three platoon commanders in the company, and they'd lost all of those NCOs. Okay, really, really brutal period of time. No chain of command stability whatsoever because of casualties. In my lie, um, the biggest thing in my lie was that it was all done under a thing called the Americal Brigade or the Americal Division, thrown together organization. The guys who did my lie were part of what's called Task Force Barker under Lieutenant Colonel Barker. Any task force that's named after its commander is probably not a good start point, if you get my point, all right? Everybody said that if been, been under General Dupuy in the Big Red One, which was the partner organization or the next organization across, never would have happened, probably never would have happened. So coherency of leadership becomes a really important part. You start taking casualties, what are the impacts? And finally, cultural and group aspects. So talk about this bit, right? Really important, the group culture bit. The really interesting thing here is who do you think was controlling the group at CPOMO? Who was in charge of that group? The biggest influence? Blackman, who was suffering from an adjustment disorder. Deeply mentally unwell. So what's interesting to look at is not just Blackman himself, but the impact of a corrupt leader suffering from an adjustment disorder on the way everybody else behaved. Remembering that the Royal Marines are a 300-year-old organization with one of the strongest ethics around. All right, but let's see, you know, you've got to think about what happened to the guys at Omar. So when we talk about group culture, we talk about virtue ethics. Hopefully some people have heard about this. You know, this is very much what Army tries to do. It tries to drive a virtue ethic. It tells people how to behave, okay? It's a very old idea, it goes back to Aristotle. You want to read about it, go and read Stephen Coleman's book, Introduction to Military Ethics uh, with Case Studies, really, really good. 
Okay, but that's what it is, a virtue ethic. And what a virtue ethic tries to do is it sets a code, right? So it's a uh, positively reinforcing cycle. So in every organization, you'll find there's a virtue ethic. And if you think about your organizations now, they'll have one. What are the things that are rewarded inside that? A bit that Colonel Britt was saying about positive reinforcement and, and negative reinforcement. So a virtue ethic tends to set an internal code of personal conduct. It provides a reward system to those who follow the code, and it then becomes a mutually reinforcing cycle. But one of the biggest lessons is, is that a virtue ethic is agnostic. So it's not inherently good. A virtue ethic will push you to bad things just as easy as it can push you to good things. Okay? There's some great examples of this. Good virtue ethics, easy company, 506th infantry, the Band of Brothers, that's them on the Eagle's Nest drinking Hitler's wine. That's pretty cool. All right. But on the other side, you have groups like Reserve Police Battalion 101, who were the biggest killers of the Holocaust. So in Operation Reinhardt, in 1943, they killed 83,000 people. Okay, shot every single one of them, no gas chambers. Okay, in two days, they killed 43,000 people in two days as a battalion. So about 500 people in that battalion. All right, to do that is actually really hard. And what got them there was a virtue ethic. So you've got to remember that these virtue ethics that emerge in groups will take you either to great things, heroism, or to the most evil of acts that are normally abhorrent to people. That makes sense. So what was the virtue ethic in CP Omar under Blackman? The best way to understand it is to think about what was said around the execution of the fighter. So I don't want you to listen to what Blackman said. I want you to listen to the responses from the soldiers who were under his command. Okay? We go back to Blackman's first words, or last words. Obviously, it doesn't go anywhere, fellas. I've just broken the Geneva Convention. Imagine your company commander, your colleague, your CO doing that. And the response was, yep, yeah, Roger, mate. No dramas. So how do they find themselves there? None of them went there acting like that. I, I doubt that was part of their pre-deployment training. Do you know what I mean? So what was it like in CP Omar? And this is where, when you find yourself in these positions, you take a step back and you go, what is it like in our CP? How do we find ourselves in this position? So there's 16 guys in CP Omar. Put a wrap around it, that was their world. All right? That was their world, there is nothing else. Okay? Sitting around that is all of the violence, all of the hatred, all of the disgust for the local populace, the death of their platoon commander, the maiming of their colleagues, the death of their interpreter, everything else that came around it. On top of that is a sense of deep isolation from their chain of command, a perception that they've been abandoned. And on the top of that is a man suffering from an adjustment disorder who's in charge of what they do. Huge red flags should have come up, but they weren't picked up, not until Ollie Lee came out. Okay? So you're part of these groups. You'll go to places like this. You're inside the bubble. How do you break out of it? You know, how do you step away from that bubble and get people to look in it and say, this is what your behavior is like? Moral didn't mean that the 
multiple degree in class of the and Sergeant Blackburn hired professional sergeants to slip through an unacceptably small level. Another World War II close to that unit told travel for news that they were used as a mark. We were all about getting the rounds down, smashing the enemy, counter-resurgence for attention. And he too, for the war of his mothers, he died a holy terror. It's really interesting. One of the questions I got from the sergeants was about warrior culture. You know, do we not think there's positive natures to warrior culture? I suspect 42 Commando had a warrior culture. They didn't need one. They needed a surgical culture. They needed a counterinsurgency culture. Now, that's what Ollie Lee brought to 42 Commando. And that was the change. So, some final thoughts. So, Blackman, right? Blackman's a really interesting guy to look at. And, and I looked at Blackman for professional interest. You know, I sat down and had a look at it because I felt it was a good way of pulling these things apart. All right, and I recommend that it's a great case study to take your soldiers and say, why don't we talk about Alexander Blackman? You know, we like him. He wasn't a bad guy. Now, I remember when we talked about what happened recently, and my wife's a lawyer, and, um, you know, I said to her, you know, she said to me, when she used to work for the Department of Public Prosecutions, there were two things they looked at. Is this bad people doing bad things, or is this good people doing bad things? That was kind of the foundational principle of what they looked at. Ollie Lee wasn't, sorry, uh, uh, Alexander Blackman wasn't a bad guy before he went, but he did bad things when he got there. And he was held accountable. So even though he was uh, not convicted of murder and he was convicted of manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility, that is still a serious crime. Okay, and he served time for it and he served three years in prison for it. And ultimately we have to hold people accountable for their actions. When people talk about how do we look at recent events, well the reality is, is that the law is very clear. If you are believed to have committed murder, you'll be tried for murder. Now after that, you bring in mitigations, you bring in other bits and pieces just like they did with Alexander Blackman. Okay, but people are legally accountable. That is the basis of our system. Big question for me from when I was, so I was in Afghanistan around about the same time. All right, the big question for me is who's guiding the moral compass of these organizations? And one of our biggest challenges is we tend to fight in huge coalitions now. So who was guiding the outcomes we came through? None of this is simple. It's all incredibly complex. We don't work in simple environments anymore. So, you know, there's 132,000 troops inside that, and you've got partners as, uh, as different as Turkey and Armenia inside there. Two people, troops, people have not always got on over that time. So who's guiding the compass? One of the scariest things for me about working for um, ISAF was that by the time we got to the end of it, I think ISAF was making decisions just because it existed. It was killing things just because it existed. It wasn't doing it really for a purpose. It was just a machine that kept going, if you know what I mean. So Krilak said this, the inescapable lessons of Somalia and of other recent operations, whether humanitarian assistance, peacekeeping, or traditional warfighting, is that their outcome may hinge on decisions made by small unit leaders, that's you guys, and me, uh, and by actions taken at the lowest level. It was 20 years ago he said that, that's still absolutely right, it doesn't change, okay? The reason is that our moral authority to apply violence for political reasons is based on morality. It's based on doing the right thing in war. That's why we have to adhere to the Geneva Conventions and all the other bits and pieces that comes with it. The problem is that when people do stuff like that, that's Lindy England dragging a Iraqi prisoner around like a dog at Abu Ghraib in 2003, it very quickly goes from being that to murals on the streets of Tehran that proves that we don't have the moral authority to apply force. We're just hypocrites in the matter of which we apply ourselves. So a guy called Colin Gray said this, he said, ethics are a survival necessity, not a luxury. We can't choose to be an ethical force. We are an ethical force, we have to be, because we're a liberal democracy. And the drama is that if we're not, it opens the gateway up for the guy you're about to see. Okay, this is a guy called uh, Tommy Robinson. He's the head of the British Defence League. It's a far-right organisation in the UK. Pretty mean. He's got, what, 2.3 million followers on Twitter? Okay, he doesn't mess around. 
right? This is what he had to say about Alexander Blackman. One of the trials in Helms Province is a big battle there, and all the contained was a small degree in Alexander's name. It's already shot by an African helicopter. It's better to say that he shot the ship by an African helicopter. He was probably going to be trying to survive. The president gives him a little around 100 bullets in the equipment. The insurgents were given a quick and humane death. So if they don't recognize the Geneva, Geneva Convention, why should they be protected by it? You know? uh, what did Blackman say at the end of it? He said, nothing you wouldn't do to us. Right? That's what's called comparative morality. And we tend to try and avoid comparative morality because we hold a higher standard. We hold a higher standard, and many of you will have seen this before, you know, because of things like the Australian Army contract. And there's one word in there that makes us hold a higher standard. Okay? If you take that one word out, that one word that is laden with value, okay, it stops being that, and you can turn it into the Islamic State creed. So you can turn it into, I'm an Islamic State soldier who's an expert in close combat. I'm physically and mentally tough and courageous. I lead by example, I strive to take the initiative. Committed to learning and working for the team. I believe in trust, loyalty, and respect for my countrymates and army. Black flag is my badge of honor, and I'm an Islamic State soldier always. The only word I've taken out is compassion. Because that's a value-laden word. It's the thing that means that we respect human life. All right. When you go into value sets, and these are a series of defense value sets, including our own ones, those are the words that are laden with value. Now, sometimes we have to talk to soldiers about these in much more detail. What do we mean when we talk about integrity? What do we mean when we talk about respect? Reality is we actually mean the grounding of values of life and liberty. We take life, but we understand the cost of it when we do so. Okay. So we'll come up to leaving the final words up to Alexander Blackman himself uh, in a second. You know, the sad truth is that most evil is made up of people who ne never make up their minds to be good or evil. Uh, did Blackman make up his mind to be good or evil before he went out to Afghanistan at that time? As Nancy Sherman, shared, a large, Nancy Sherman said, a large part of evil consists in its novelty. If it has been pondered beforehand, the blow is gentle when it comes. And the final really interesting point is one of honor. Okay? So when they got to the final statements in the Supreme Court uh, review of the case, uh, Al Blackman's wife um, put across in her statement that um, the thing that Al considered to be the cruelest punishment was that he was dismissed from the Royal Marines in disgrace when he was convicted of murder. The Supreme Court made the following judgment. They said, in the light of the appellant's outstanding service prior to the killing of the insurgent, there should be no question of dismissal with honor. And they reinstated him back into the Royal Marines and then honorably discharged him from the back of it. So what they said at the end of the Supreme Court judgment was that, yes, his actions had been criminal, but they hadn't been dishonorable. 
very interesting thing to think about. So there you go, that is the story of Alexander Blackman. Does anyone have any questions, if we have time? Hey, Carl, how are you? Good, thanks, sir. Uh, just a quick question on the adjustment disorder. Um, yeah. I'm struggling a little bit to understand that, maybe in like a civilian example of someone that has an adjustment disorder, yeah. what that psychological disorder looks like? Yeah, sure. So I, I'm not uh, a doctor uh, or a psychiatrist. Um, just, adjustment disorder is a diagnosable mental health condition that does exactly that. It, um, uh, it's a disorder that adjusts your ability to make decisions about yourself and about others. It's often linked to things like major depressive disorder. Uh, and you tend to find that people will be diagnosed with MDD and an adjustment disorder at the same time. Often linked to PTSD. And so people find that after considerably stressful events, they suffer from adjustment disorders on the back of it. Does that make sense? Um, but yeah, it's well recognized, well established, and well understood. You know, is he right that, you know, 25% of people in theater, a third of those are suffering from adjustment disorders? I don't know, maybe. I mean, that, that's a pretty bold statement to make in a Supreme Court judgment about a murder. So I don't think he would have said it without sound belief behind it. I, I just find that hard that a lot of the times when we review this, the, the, the people aren't put in this situation, like in Rwanda, um, having boy soldiers shoot people, like two rows in front of me, and, and our ROE, we could do nothing. You have a different perspective when you see something like that, and the feelings that people have, and the, the raw emotion can really... It changes your whole perspective on the battlefield. Yeah, I think I think I agree. And you know, I come back to my first point that a lot of the way in which we either protect soldiers from being put in those situations or being put into ethic, true ethical dilemmas where there is no right answer, it's the least worst answer you're trying to find. That is a strategic choice. It's it's a operational and strategic choice about how you design a theatre. What are the national caveats? What are the rules of engagement? You know, uh, go and read Romeo Dallaire's book, you know, Shaking Hands with the Devil. You know, he's very much about, you know, we, we, need, we wanted to act uh, and we wish we could, but we weren't established to do so. You know, there wasn't the framework. Uh, and arguably, they actually almost legitimized the massacre by being there in the first place. You know, so what are the, what are the second and third order effects of the way we think about things? Now, that, that's discussions for colonels, if I'm honest, you know what I mean? But equally, we live the results of those, and therefore the, the loop we've got to push up is that, you know, if you, if you design it like this, the experience would say it's going to end there. It's also a conversation to have with the Australian public. You know, if you send people off to go and do what they did for a long period of time, don't be surprised if the outcome eventually is things like this. 